Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. We've spoken to many frontline providers on Raise the Line to get a ground level perspective on the pandemic. But today we wanna step back a bit and get an administrator's view on the crisis. Here to tell us how COVID is impacting hospital operations and what the future holds for health systems in a post-COVID world is Varun Khanna, director at Sialam Hospitals Group, which is the largest private hospital network in Indonesia. He brings many years of experience in business and healthcare management to that role. In his past roles, he's been the executive vice president at Fortis Healthcare and also the managing director at Becton Dickinson for India and South Asia, one of the largest medical technology companies in the world. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Rishu. A pleasure to be on the show with you. So maybe we can just back up and, and you can tell me a little bit about kind of what got you interested in healthcare management. What was your first professional dip into that sector? So that's a very interesting question, uh, Rishi. I've been doing healthcare for about uh, 12, 13 years now, and I never trained for healthcare from an education perspective. You know, I graduated in computer science and uh, uh, did my master's in marketing and finance and then started working for a telecom company followed by a retail company. Now, um, I've been lucky in a way that I've diverted a few careers, which has given me a lot of diversity uh, of experiences. But at some stage in career, you start thinking, what is it that you want to do, which kind of kindles your passion, uh, which uh, helps you uh, follow a purpose and still make you some money, uh, right? Not the other way around. You know, there was a time when this happened to me as well. And I was at uh, that time running uh, fairly large operations in telecom. And I thought to myself that there are two careers that I'd love to do. One is healthcare and education. Um, and as luck would have it, healthcare happened first. So in India, uh, healthcare largely, till about a decade, decade and a half back, was run by doctors, right? Even the administrative side. The P&Ls of hospitals didn't look good. Uh, the receivables were crazy. Customer management was limited to clinical side of it. Uh, but the service aspect of it was, was probably not there. And uh, let alone using data, let alone using uh, digital technology. And when you're not wired for this, you don't think about it, right? And uh, I think which is where the match was. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Shivinder Singh, who then owned Fortis, was looking at someone who can look beyond the clinical aspects of healthcare uh, and also kind of uh, manage the uh, PNL and um, uh, allow the company to grow. Because unless you have a sustainable PNL, you're not able to grow. So I think it was kind of uh, a good match and uh, it just happened. Uh, now, as you know, the, the, the healthcare space is unlike any of the other businesses. And I always saying that it's one of the most complex businesses that uh, you could run. So it needs a lot of training. It has a huge entry barrier, right? And for that entry barrier, um, when I joined Fortis Healthcare, I actually went through uh, significant training for about a year. Uh, which covered all aspects of healthcare, not limited to clinical, but administrative. And I came to the US as well to study. And uh, yeah, so uh, it was a huge induction program for about a year that kind of got me going. So I'm curious, what, what was it like culturally? You said 10, 15 years ago, it was mostly clinicians kind of running PLs, and that's obviously not what they're trained in doing. And so uh, probably making some, some mistakes, I would venture to guess. And, and you come along as someone that's not clinically trained, and you have a very different sort of skill set. What was that initial um, maybe year to three year window when you first got injected into the program? It's difficult to be, uh, in those days, certainly, it was very difficult to get into a organization which is run uh, by clinicians and uh, 
and i was pretty young as well uh, looked young uh, for whatever it's worth uh, right so yes it was a difficult task so the company got split into three parts right so the company had acquired an asset in the western and the eastern part of the of india uh, so what uh, the management did then was they actually placed a doctor in the north and gave me the new acquisition to integrate into the company which was the western and the eastern side of it it was a completely separate network and i was kind of uh, held responsible for that part it took a little while to kind of make space uh, with the conditions but the fact of the matter is that uh, relationships do work in india and once the doctors start believing that you are there to help them and not in any way take anything away then it becomes healthy business so it did take 12 to 18 months but i think the relationship orientation that i had led me through so it kind of segues into my next question which is about managing change in healthcare organizations i mean you've been doing this for a, a good chunk of your career what are some lessons you've picked up along the way in terms of what are some ways to do it right and and also what are some ways to kind of avoid so you don't make missteps in managing change i think there are three aspects to this which i want to touch upon the first one is healthcare is about a lot of people it's not just systems and infrastructure so i call healthcare as tti talent technology and infrastructure and if you come to think of it talent is huge right you have clinicians you have nurses you have administrators uh, and you have a whole lot of uh, associates so it's it's not something that is run by uh, machines it's run by humans so uh, the first and the most important aspect is the talent management uh, and i think uh, most critical Uh, the second one that i realized is uh, over the last uh, again 14 years is that you got to continue to grow your clinical talent is with you your administrative talent is with you if you're growing the moment you start getting static in this business uh, you know you'll have attrition which is clinical attrition and, and that gets you into spiral downward loop uh, so uh, till you are able to think strategically as to what to add and how to enable uh, growth for the clinicians i think that's where uh, the key is and if you are able to show growth year on year the fees that the doctors would take back or the incomes that the whole system will generate uh, will keep on growing and that is something that everybody loves the third is um, communication has been uh, the key to success and communication is not talking about the doctor uh, administration communication i'm talking about a 360 communication right one of the things that helped us succeed in the businesses that i've run Uh, has been communication to the consumer uh, has been communication with the doctors doctor to consumer doctor to patient i think that's the third uh, incredibly important aspect in our business now you may say that all of this is important everywhere but i think these are the three key ones that uh, really kind of uh, hold the key uh, in this business i know a lot of our audience would love to learn a little bit more about clm hospitals group do you mind just giving us a sense of its scale how it fits into the healthcare landscape in indonesia yeah so um, uh, rishi as you rightly mentioned we are the largest private healthcare chain in the country and not only uh, largest by uh, number of hospitals but number of beds so we run about 40 hospitals we run about 40 clinics cumulative uh, almost 4000 beds in the country uh, and the beauty of our network is that we are spread out across the country so we cover 27 cities across indonesia we complete 25 years of existence this year we deal with about a couple of million patients every year across our opds ipds and uh, eds we are a listed organization uh, in the indonesian uh, stock exchange uh, with a market cap in excess of a billion us dollars 
So that's uh, the size and scale. We partner, uh, associate with almost 9% of the clinicians in Indonesia. So that's the level of scale that uh, we have in that, that country. That's remarkable. And, and of course, then you'll have a good, a good set of insights into the next question, which is what's happening on the ground in Indonesia right now with COVID and, and how's the healthcare system right now managing that situation? How's it, how's it looking from your vantage point? So um, it's a little depressing these days. With this wave of COVID, uh, Indonesia has got impacted significantly. Capacities are running out. Oxygen's been an issue. Of course, uh, infection rates have gone up. Death rates have gone up. Three key things again. One, the penetration of vaccination is still not very high. Uh, double dose, which is the complete vaccination, I think is only uh, single-digit percentages uh, from a population standpoint. The single dose is now touching about 18 19%, but there's a long way to go. Indonesia does have a constraint on healthcare infrastructure as well, and most importantly, testing. For a 260 to 70 million people, Indonesia's PCR capacity, 60 to 80,000 PCRs a day, and that, uh, as you would imagine, is much lower than what WHO really prescribes. And therefore, when we look at 50, 55,000 positive numbers uh, in Indonesia, uh, you know, it is constrained by the level of testing as well. Having said that, as we know that this disease comes in like a wave and the wave then perishes as well. Uh, we've seen the statistics in India on the Delta virus, and we've been tracking that closely as well because India preceded this, this curve in Indonesia. Uh, we have created a lot of predictor models for ourselves in Indonesia so that we are able to gear up uh, our capacities and more importantly, our people, because sometimes the constraint is not the physical capacity. It turns out to be nurses, because in this disease, what's happened that the more the nurses treat, uh, there is an infection that they acquire as well, uh, which does not allow them to really operate. And that's something that uh, we've got impacted with. Indonesia has got impacted with. A lot of healthcare workers have got impacted and therefore they're not able to then uh, serve the patients to the fullest. So yeah, with all of those constraints, um, it's been a little bit of tough time. In the last week or so, we've seen the numbers getting slightly better. So Indonesia was reporting anything between 50 to 60,000 cases a day. And that number in the last uh, one week is averaging about 30, 35,000. So that goes on to say that the peak may be kind of uh, right there. And then we'll start to see the numbers dwindling down. Do you mind just sharing a little bit more about that? So obviously, when you walk into a hospital, the expectation is that you're going to have healthcare providers there. And in my mind, I often have said to myself, a hospital without nurses and doctors is basically just a very expensive hotel room, because you don't have anyone to deliver the care that you need. And so what are some of the solutions that you're seeing to help with that incredible shortage that you just described where some of the nurses are getting sick? Are there any sort of creative solutions that you've come across that are happening in some hospitals and maybe extending to other hospitals as time goes on and they learn from one another? The problem persists. While we've figured out some solutions, the problem certainly persists. Uh, a lack of infrastructure cannot be replaced. Uh, what we've tried to do is develop protocols around home care. Well, with COVID, what happens is that there is panic. Anybody who turns positive rushes to a hospital, and this is what we see in Indonesia as well. So, you know, the moment you turn positive and you know that oxygen is a constraint, bed is a constraint, so the first thing, uh, and the influential people would do it a little bit more, they, they run towards the bed. And that is something I think that's caused a lot of panic because then the patients who really need the bed, really need the hospital care, don't get it because people who probably could do without are occupying a bed. So that's one thing that we did. So we, we started to ensure that 
when the bed is given out, it's given out to patients who really need it. For the ones who are not so acute, we develop home care services. We were able to provide cover in, in the comfort of their home. And one nurse could actually manage about 10 patients a day, sometimes even 15. Because at the end of the day, those patients, uh, once they get over their initial reaction to turning positive, they're fine. They just need the drugs. They just need some care. They just need to isolate themselves. And unless they get into uh, breathing issues and so on and so forth, they'll recover over a period of two weeks. Uh, so that piece, I think, really helped us. So that's the second solution that we uh, really created. The third uh, was we digitized almost everything. So we were in the process of uh, digitization uh, of our services. I think COVID catalyzed the whole process, uh, right? And that brought in a lot of system. Uh, so people won't run to a hospital unless they've got their bookings done and appointments done and scheduling is, is organized. So, you know, th there won't be a point in time where there are queues and queues of people standing outside. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Uh, a lot of people still don't use or don't want to use the digital services, but that has impacted the scenario on the ground very positively. You know, I'm curious, right now we have in the U.S. almost a story of two countries, you know, those that are unvaccinated and those that are vaccinated. And there's a huge issue around vaccine hesitancy. I'm just curious to know, what is the on-the-ground situation in Indonesia? Is it simply what you said, you know, just simply not enough vaccine for the population at the moment and sort of a logistic issue? Or is there any sort of cultural issue around vaccination itself uh, like, like we see it here in the U.S.? Uh, Rishi, so, uh, you know, it's a difficult comparison between U.S. and Indonesia. The resources are very different. The government spends are very different. Uh, and I would say that uh, resource is a constraint there. And when I say it's not financial resources, I think it's availability and access of uh, access to the, uh, to, to the vaccines. In Indonesia, we've seen that um, uh, the vaccines really came in from China. A very small part of it was AstraZeneca. And it still did not have access to uh, some of the large so to say, Pfizer's and Moderna's of the world were not really available. So two, uh, it's a very spread out country and that complicates matters significantly. It's also a sizable country. So uh, while the rate has gone to about a million vaccines a day, it's not good enough is the way I see it. Trying to answer your question on the cultural side of it, I don't think people are resisting vaccines there, uh, like the US where uh, in spite of availability, the number is not now getting beyond the 57, 58% mark. But if uh, vaccines keep on coming into Indonesia, Indonesia will continue to vaccinate is the way I see it. I don't think cultural constraints will come in. Constraints are more to do with infrastructure, with manpower and availability of vaccines. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, and thank you for kind of laying it side by side and pointing out some of the key differences. I'm curious, you know, you said earlier that you were planning on digitizing anyway and COVID kind of accelerated that process. Are there any other things or examples you can think of that were happening anyway, but got accelerated by COVID? And once the acute crisis of COVID is over, do you see anything that probably won't go back uh, to the way things used to be? Because now things have just changed in terms of how healthcare is delivered. Uh, Rishi, I have a view here, which I'd love to table. Uh, you know, when the, when the disease came in, we all thought, at least personally, I did think that it's kind of a disruption that will go away in two, three months. It's a disease that's uh, temporary, uh, right? Uh, the world has seen it in the past, but it kind of uh, gets over, right? I think over the last one and a half years, uh, that's changing. I don't believe COVID is a disruption anymore. Uh, it's going to be a paradigm shift in our lives. Uh, you know, I, I, I certainly don't know currently 
how will we get over it? I mean, I, I don't see a scientific way of saying that one fine day COVID will vanish. We don't have the vaccines, which can guarantee us that we will not get infected currently. There's no treatment for the disease, which is uh, validated to the extent that you can say, okay, go with this disease and it will just be a common cold and nothing else. The death rates are continuing to be high in many countries still. Some of us are believing that infectious diseases, whether it's COVID, one mutation, second mutation, you call it Delta or Alpha, some of this is going to stay. We'll have to learn to manage lives alongside some of these infectious diseases. So uh, a lot of people have started talking about this and, uh, and we have to start thinking of how to manage our businesses with COVID really. And the other thing that's happening uh, is uh, so many people have got impacted. Our lifestyles have changed. There's a different kind of a disease which is emerging. Uh, you know, uh, let me give you a sense of some of the things that we've been talking about. Uh, we've actually started thinking of future trends uh, and what the world should be prepared for. Look at things like behavior. Well, there's so much changing. Uh, you and I, instead of meeting and being in a studio and recording this on a Zoom call, and we are looking into the screens. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, uh, within our organization, we've seen a lot of people whose eyes have got impacted. So they have begun some sort of treatment. Now, what are the long-term impacts of this? We'll wait and watch. Uh, right, but there certainly will be an impact. Uh, we are seeing uh, in Indonesia uh, more cases of excessive smoking now because people are at home and they believe that working from home is not that taxing and therefore there's more time and there's more time they're either consuming meals or alcohol or, or cigarettes. And th there is a degree of unhealthy lifestyle that is coming in. Now, all of this will lead to a change in uh, our health levels. I'll tell you a significant trend. Two years back, uh, a significant component of our revenue used to come through medical checkups. No one turns up to a hospital for a medical checkup anymore, right? Uh, unless we provide diagnostics at home, there is no medical checkup business. If you go to a medical checkup, we've, we've got plush medical checkup rooms and there's no one turning up. Uh, corporate medical checkups are not happening anymore. So a significant revenue streams got impacted, right? Is there a market for it? Certainly. People still want to get the diagnostics done as long as we can reach out to them as opposed to they coming into us. So I think that's uh, another significant change and seem, uh, seeing on diagnostics. Now, on diagnostics, uh, you know, uh, previously, if you had fever or cold, you won't go running to a hospital. Today, you sneeze and you go running to a hospital. So therefore, the need for diagnostics will go up. Uh, if you look at all diagnostics companies across the globe, throughput has increased. Now, whether it's a COVID testing, and I'm sure there'll be more on the COVID testing side that'll keep coming in. Uh, there is an after effect of COVID as well, right? Some people have seen uh, cardiac issues. Some people have seen neuro issues. So I'm saying that COVID is not that short-term assignment. It's got to be longer COVID. And while the Western world is planning for it, there are clinics emerging on, on treatment of post-COVID patients, right? Or well-being of post-COVID patients. I think that's another significant trend that we need to be mindful of. I think the last part of it is site of service, right? There was a time that we were looking at hospitals, larger, larger hospitals, right? So that economics could be managed. But I think now we'll have to start thinking of care delivery on site, right? Today, our corporates want us to be there in their offices, in their factories. People want us to operate uh, from home. People are looking at uh, digital services. Teleconsult has really gone up. I mean, you look at tele and chat consults, that's becoming the order of the day. So doctors have to learn to deliver care through a call center. I mean, something that 
They would never want to do, never, right? If you ask the specialist, would you be okay sitting at a call center? The answer would be a no, right? Two years back. And I think all of this will uh, lead to a lot of change. There will be technology coming in, which will be uh, disrupting the way services have been delivered in the past. Um, and the world has started thinking uh, on those lines. I think uh, COVID's really uh, going to change a lot in healthcare delivery systems as well. Wow, that is, oftentimes they use the, the phrase food for thought. That was a that was a seven course meal for thought because I think every one of those points you can expand upon and, and th- play it out. And and clearly, as you as you rightly pointed, you know we're not ever really going to go back. And uh, so many things have to be rethought through and it on on a timeline that really no one expected eighteen months ago. So. It yeah. makes a lot of sense. If I, if I may, uh, uh, Rishi, just add, you don't have multinationals operating hospitals across the world, right? Uh, and come to think of it, that's the only space where multinationals aren't there. Uh, I think now when, when remote care starts to get acceptance, I mean, you could be sitting in the US and treating a patient somewhere in uh, Asia or the uh, or other way around. I think it's still early days, but I uh, I would imagine because of COVID, a lot of that will also change. Healthcare delivery will not know regional boundaries anymore. And care will transcend beyond boundaries, beyond countries. Uh, and I think that's another significant uh, disruption that the global see. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I have never really given that thought, the fact that multinationals don't really exist in this vertical, which is a vertical that is so uh, steeped in money. I mean, up and down. So it's kind of surprising. And and I think you're right that this is uh, a time when we might start seeing that uh, quite soon. Listen, you, you've given me a lot to think about. I know our, our audience is probably just tantalized by what you just said. That was fantastic. And our hearts, of course, go out to the folks that are dealing with COVID, not just in, in Indonesia, but really around the world. So thank you for, for joining the show and, and talking us through all of that. Excellent, Rishi. A pleasure to be on the show. Thank you so much. And I uh, hope that your listeners are able to benefit from what I've said. And uh, I can certainly receive any queries if they have uh, on my email, and I'll be happy to respond. Yeah, thank you for, for that. Very generous of you. Listen, I'm Rishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>